I'm going to be picking up our reading this morning in the fifth chapter of 1 John, beginning in verse 6 of that chapter, and reading on through verse 10. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the, whole, the Spirit is the truth. For there are these three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, guide us as we have a chance to be in your word this morning. Through your Holy Spirit, would you illumine our hearts as we study what you've said, that we would understand it at all levels, in our minds, in our hearts, that we would see as you touch it, things that need to change in our thinking, in our attitudes, or in our actions. And then, Lord, enable us as we step out in alignment and obedience to you to see those things change. And we'll thank you ahead of time for that. Give us alertness of mind as we have a chance to spend time in your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The fifth chapter of First John opens up with uh, emphasis on agape love, kind of bridges from the fourth chapter in that regard. It uh, reviewed initially in the opening verses some lessons about agape love, how agape love, which has its origin in God, not humanity, that God has taken that love and he has poured it into our hearts after we are saved. And so we have resonant within us a love that is not innate to humanity. And as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, as we live surrendered to him and allowing the Holy Spirit's enablement, that the fruit of the Spirit begins to be evidenced in our lives, the leading example of which in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 is love, agape love. And so God is going to work this in. And his intention is that that agape love, which he's poured into us as his redeemed children, would make a difference in our relationships Make a difference in how we interact with people. Last week, in verses 3 to 5, we were building on that and looking at the relationship between agape love and obedience, in obeying the commands of God, not just about agape, but everything. Uh, we are often tempted in our life as redeemed believers to think that to carry out the command of agape is going to be a struggle or a burden. We know from experience that the flesh and the world fight against agape. They fight against that expression within our lives. We also know the enemy of our souls doesn't want it expressed either. And so it would seem to us to be nothing but a big struggle ahead of us if we're going to be doing the things that God has called us to do and in line, and in fact being in line with agape. But God told us in these verses this very interesting and almost unbelievable truth. He says, my commands are not burdensome. <laughs> uh, and it seems to go counter our experience, the way that God said that. The word burdensome translates baros in the Greek, which refers to something that's weighing the shoulders down of somebody. And uh, 
we say, well, I, I can well understand your commands weighing my shoulders down. <laughs> what I don't understand is how your commands don't weigh my shoulders down. Yeah, that's, what's, that's what's not clear to me. And so God has said to us, and he explained to us, uh, three reasons why his commands are not burdensome to us, just by way of review from last week. Uh, the first is, we're accepted. What I meant by that, and what God means by that, is that we are, are already accepted by God because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our obedience to agape, or our obedience to any of the other commands of God, has nothing to do with acceptance with God. The only thing that has anything to do with acceptance with God is responding to the gospel. By the way, the scripture does talk about response to the gospel as being obedience to the gospel, to obey the gospel. So and I guess in that sense, obedience is there, that we need to act on and obey what the gospel says, which is that we need to confess our sin, admit our sin, turn from it, receive Christ, and trust in the work he has on the cross. But nonetheless, coming back to his reasons why his commands are not burdensome to us, we've been freed up from trying to gain some assurance of our acceptance by God by how well we do obedience-wise. He says, that's the first reason that my commands are not burdensome because now under the old covenant, (laughs) they were burdensome because the criteria was, I'll accept you if you are obedient. None of us were. (laughs) Big problem. He says, now that's changed. Secondly, he says, what makes my commands no longer burdensome is that I've changed you. When we respond to the gospel, God gave us a new birth. We, we become new creations. We've changed at the deepest level of our life. Romans 7 picks up on that by saying, at the deepest level of my heart, I long to do the commands of God, the word of God. Uh, that's not true of the unbeliever. Uh, they might wish they could at times, but their deepest wish is their own self-will. But uh, God says, no, I changed you. At the deepest level of your, you really do want to do now what I've called you to do. So because I've changed you, because you no longer have to gain my acceptance through your obedience, then because I've fundamentally changed you so that at the deepest level of your heart, you want to be obedient, all of that starts to change the equation. (laughs) No longer are the commands burdensome in the way they were, prior to that. But then he goes even further and he says, not only have I accepted you in Christ, not only have I done a miracle of changing you so that if you're anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, not only have I done that miracle, but I've also had the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, indwell you. So the third reason that his commands are not burdensome is that we are now empowered with a source of strength beyond our own to obey them. Not true of the person who has not come to know Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling your life, you don't have that enabling power from God. And God says, no, listen, if you become my child, I've given you the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. And he will make you, as we talked about last week, the overcomer. And that's the Greek word, uh, a form of the Greek word Nike, from which we get, uh, you know, the, the, the logo brand, you know, the victor, the victory person, we're the overcomers. Three reasons why my commands are not burdensome. 
God doesn't mean by that that his commands aren't a struggle. He doesn't mean by that that we don't face the temptation not to obey. Of course we do. But he says it's not what it was before. It was burdensome when my commands were how you got accepted by me. When my commands were something that went against the very deepest level of your heart. And when my commands were having to be carried out entirely on your own strength. He says, I've changed the equations. All of this is different. And therefore, my commands are not burdensome. What praise there is in that. I mean, we could go back and spend another week on that, but I won't. (laughs) But isn't that a wonderful truth for us? Uh, Now today, verse 6 marks a shift in the book a bit. In verses 6 to 10, God turns attention to giving us some proofs of the new covenant. Proofs that the gospel is true. Proofs that we can have confidence in that very thing that did save us. Remember, all of these other things are built on the fact that, hey, Christ did die for us. And therefore, there's another way that we find acceptance with God through what he did and all of that. Now he's turning attention to saying, let's go to that issue, because that's the most fundamental issue of all. How do you know? What are the proofs to you? And he says, is the gospel and confidence about the gospel just wishful thinking? You know, something that people do religiously to make themselves feel better? Is that what it is? And God says, no, that's not what it is. Not that there aren't some people who try to do that, but he says, that's not, that's not what it is. It's more than just trying to make yourself feel better and wishful thinking. It is true. And these truths and the proofs of them are important because our eternity rises and falls on whether it's true. The fact of the matter is, if the gospel is not true, we're lost. Whatever you try to do, obedience-wise or religious-wise, is just kind of a big mockery because you've already fallen short of the mark. You're already facing a holy, just, perfect God before whom you have no excuse for your rebellion, nor any solution to it. And uh, if the gospel's not true, (laughs) then uh, we're not saved. If the gospel's not true, we're not accepted. If the gospel's not true, we've not been changed, made new creations. And if the gospel's not true, the Holy Spirit hasn't come into our lives and empowered us. All of the things that make it so the commands of God are not burdensome have all changed. I mean, all of that previous hope is gone if the cross did not achieve what the gospel says it did. If the coming of the Lord Jesus, the incarnation of the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, did not achieve what the gospel says it did, we got nothing. Basically, we've got nothing. Uh, No religious new leaf in anyone's life will ever change eternal destinies of people. It's not just trying to do a better job. Buck it up and try to do a better job. That's not going to do anything. The gospel says only the cross and the resurrection is the proper foundation for any hope. And apart from that, you haven't got any hope. It's hopeless. So how do we know? Let's get down to that question, because that's what verse 6 starts to pick up. How do we know that the gospel promises are true? How do we know that we can rest our eternity and our future in those very promises? Let's look at it together. 
The principle upon which verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 build is this principle. The most important truth claims of life require supporting evidence. Let me repeat that. The most important truth claims in life require supporting evidence. They can't just be postulated. They can't just be put out there and say, well, I claim this to be true. Why? You know, what, what gives you any reason to believe that that's true? You, it's not just formulating something. It's validating something that has all, it makes all the difference with truth claims. So how do you know? How do you know <laughs> that this stuff is true? God says it's a good question to be asking because all truth claims need evidence. Evidence in the form of witnesses to it. I was thinking of how this matches other things in the Scriptures. For example, in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, in chapter 35 and verse 30, it says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of simply one witness. In other words, the the truth claim that you are guilty of the murder of this person has to have at least two witnesses of this. One is not adequate. Why? Because people can lie. You say, well, so can groups. Yeah, but the percentage drops way down when you have more than one. So God says, listen, the truth claim here requires evidence. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, you need confirmation. Why? Because there'll always be the potential of somebody lying through their teeth. And if that's what it is, and the way you deal with your spiritual leaders is, well, who do we believe? You're in a bad place. You follow what I'm saying? And so God says, no, within the context of the church, you need a couple witnesses before you give validity to any accusation against a spiritual leader. So once again, the truth claims require evidences, supporting witnesses, How about the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ? I was thinking of John 8 in this regard. In verses 17 and 18, it says, Jesus is speaking, and he says, In your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Because what was happening in John 8 is the people were saying, Hey, you're making all these claims. (laughs) That's not adequate. We we don't have to believe it simply because you're claiming it. And he says, Well, there's another that gives witness to me. on the important things that I'm saying, which are calling all of you as a people into account. All right. Therefore, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that the gospel claims would require proof and witnesses. I mean, if if all of these other things, which are just temporal in a way, require that, how about things that are eternal? You know, and God says, yeah, yeah, there need to be testimonials. (laughs) There need to be witnesses to it. Things that testify to its, to its truth. In 1 John already, we've seen an amazing summary of things linked to the gospel. The incarnation, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. The atonement is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Intercession, he, he ever lives, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's our advocate. You know, with tremendous promises to us. And God says, I'll give you some testimonials about these promises, so that you know it's not just empty premise, but fulfilled promise and testified, witnessed to 
affirmations. And he says, in fact, I'll give you three of them. I'll go one better than the two. I'll give you three that will be confirming to you as testimonies witnessing to the truth of the claims of the gospel, which, by the way, as I already said, are the most important claims of eternity. I mean, you can go wrong on a lot of other things. You better not go wrong on eternal things. You better better be sure that what you're banking your eternity on is true. And uh, because sincerity doesn't change eternal destiny. Only truth changes eternal destiny. And so he says, how do we know it's true? Well, he gives three testimonies about it. He says, he, that this is he who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. Then the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There, For there are the three that testify, that give the witness that we're talking about. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three all agree. In other words, they're not telling us something different. They're all telling us the same thing. So let's look at those witnesses a little bit. Witnesses to the gospel. Witnesses to the reasons why it's legitimate for us and reasonable for us to bank our eternity on it. You know, He says, well, witnesses one and two out of the three, testimonial one and two out of the three, are linked together. He calls them the water and the blood. They bear testimony to the truth of the gospel that is proclaimed. The water and the blood, in verse 6, makes it plain. I'm sorry, yeah, it says, this is he who came by water and the blood. In other words, the water and the blood are somehow intimately linked to the one who came, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. You know, somehow, what he means by this is intimately linked to him. It's clear that's what it's about. And so the first two of the three testimonials, witnesses, are linked to Jesus Christ and things that intersected his life in this world. That it's linked to Jesus Christ is absolutely clear. But for many people, as they start to go through this, what that means is not quite so clear. I mean, it's clear who they're talking about. I don't know what, quite what they're talking about. You know, ever have that problem when you're working through the scriptures? Clear what it's talking about, not quite sure what that means. You know, clear what's being talked about. So let's look at it. There have been some different options suggested over time by by teachers over history, really, uh, of what those water and blood refer to. In the early church, a fairly widespread belief was this: that it was re- they thought it was referring to the incarnation. Why? Because in the early church, it was fairly common in that, re- that time of history, that culture, to talk about birth and use the imagery of water and blood, because the water and blood referred to the breaking of the water, amniotic fluid, and also the blood, the placenta bleeding, and so forth. That it was a, you say, well, I, I, was, I was going to say it's a, it was a polite way to describe birth. And you say, well, that doesn't sound so polite, but, it, but it really, take my word for it, that's how they, they saw it as a more polite way to refer to the idea of birth. And so in that era of the early church, people thought, well, when you use that phrase, the water and the blood, we're really just repeating what John chapter, 1 John chapter 1 was trying to underscore for us, that the Word has made flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen him. We've touched him. He was a real person. Uh, and that's what it's about. 
He, was, he lived and he died. And it's possible that's what it means, but I don't think that's what it means. <laughs> right? It wouldn't be like somebody's believing false doctrine if they decided, well, I think that's what it's referring to, because there's contextual reason, given the picture of First John, to say, well, I think, I think what they're really trying to emphasize is the incarnation's part of our proof. If the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, we'd take hope in that. If it was just some sort of spiritual thing, don't have any hope in that. You know, is it, was it real? Space and time, flesh and blood. Uh, but as I say, I don't, I don't think that's what's being referred to here. Now, some have, over in history, church history, and even into the current day, have said, no, no, I, I think the water, the witness, the testimony of the water and the blood is what is referred to in John's gospel, not the, not the epistle, but he's referring back to his gospel in John chapter 19, verses 33 to 35, where it says, And they came to Jesus, talking about the, the, the soldiers, and they saw that he was already dead, and so they didn't break his legs, which is what they do if they're wanting somebody to die on the cross and they haven't died yet. You break their legs, they can't push themselves up, and they can't breathe, they fix, asphyxiate, and, they, and that's how you put them to death. But they saw he wasn't. Uh, but one of the soldiers, just to, be, just to be safe, pierced his side with the spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And, uh, and so the, the proof of his death was seen as confirmed by the blood and the water. And so people said, well, John's talked about this at other places, and he could potentially be talking about this here. And, and therefore, we think that's what's meant here. So when we're saying, what was the witness to us that, in fact, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and actually died for our sins? The spear in his side, the, the water and the blood that came out. Possible contextually. Uh, I don't believe that's the meaning but you're not going to be teaching false doctrine if you believe that, because you're affirming something that's been said other places. Now, some absolutely incorrectly have said, no, 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 we know what this is all about. This is talking about sacraments. What do you mean, this is talking about sacraments? Yeah, it's talking about sacraments. You know, how, how Jesus, who's our living water and who is the bread of heaven, his body broken for us, it's in the midst of sacraments that we gain the proof and benefits from his work on the cross. Brothers and sisters, while that makes a lot of sense to those who have a sacramental understanding of things, there's not any biblical foundation for that. I mean, that's not what the Bible says. Are you, are you saying something that's opposed to the Bible? No, it's just saying something the Bible doesn't say. I always think that's a bad place to be. <laughs> Better to say, well, the Bible just doesn't say that. Uh, is it wrong? I think it is because the Bible doesn't say it, but I, I stand ready to be corrected by the Lord when I'm with him. But what I don't stand ready to do is believe something strongly now that he didn't say, simply because it seemed reasonable and logical. I don't think that's a good place to be. So, anyway, I don't think that's the answer. That's not what he's talking about here. All right, so what is he talking about? Well, many Bible teachers, and I'm one, <laughs> says, okay, well, what he's talking about, number one, when he's talking about the water, remember we're talking about testimony, somebody giving witness to something? The water in Matthew chapter 3, listen to these words in verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, the Father's voice, 
said, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now that sounds like a testimony. I, I don't know. You know, in, in the witness of law, you know, that, what, did, what did the father say? He said, This is my son. Is it possible that that's what's drawing our attention back to that episode? Because we're looking for confirmations that he was who he claimed he was. Because the gospel was built on that, that he was who he claimed he was. The father gave witness to it. It was testimony time. And the father gave the testimony. Now, I I think that's reasonable. Uh, I'm I'm inclined (laughs) that direction on it. Uh, So, but like I say, I can live with people holding the first two, not the sacramental view, but the others. Yeah, it's possible. But I think this one's more likely because of the tenor of this, these verses, which is all about witness in court. You know, there's what are, who can give testimony to something, you know. And I think this is in keeping with that. Uh, well, how about the blood? Well, I believe the, that it's the blood obviously is referring, in my mind, obviously referring to his shed blood on the cross. The blood that cleanses us from all sin. The blood that's at the heart of what propitiation is all about. That he shed it for us. Remember back in the second chapter? First chapter, blood cleanses us from all sin. Second chapter, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And I think that's what it's referring to. Because at the cross, there was another set of testimonial times going on. I mean, there were people seeing some very remarkable things. Seeing how Jesus died, first of all. The soldiers who saw death all the time couldn't believe he was already dead, you know. But he had atoned and gave up his spirit. Nobody took his life. He gave it up at that point. Uh, When he died, the darkness, the splitting of the veil in the temple, most important division point for the Jew, gone, access to the Father. The resurrection, following it, Mark chapter 15 and verses 37 to 39 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Who did that? God did that. (laughs) He was telling us, testifying that a new way had been opened into his presence now because the atoning work of Christ. And when the centurion who stood there facing Jesus saw saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The ones who were thinking, it's like, wait a second. I've been around a lot of people dying. Nothing like this. This this is different. He must have been the Son of God. Good start to believe in the gospel, by the way. Because no one ends up being saved who doesn't also believe that. Now, they need to act on it, of course. But no one ever was saved because they thought, well, Jesus is kind of a moral teacher, and I'll just, I'd like to follow his ways. That didn't save anybody. Do you believe he was the word made flesh and dwelt among us? Aha, that saves somebody. That saves somebody. So those, I believe, are the meaning of those first two witnesses. But like I say, I can sit down over coffee with someone and say, well, contextually, yeah, that, that other one would work, yeah. The incarnation and so forth, that's fine. Hope that's helpful for you anyway. But again, he says, listen, there's a third witness here. (laughs) It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And there are these three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and all three are agreeing. The third witness is the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is the clear testimony, by the way, of a convicted heart 
when they hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit, the scripture tells us, convicts a person's heart about the truth of the gospel. John chapter 16 puts it this way in verses 8 to 11. And when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they don't believe in me, concerning righteousness because I've gone to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged and there is a judgment coming that no one escapes apart from placing their faith in me. You know, uh, Holy Spirit. We would never repent and believe if it were not for the third witness. There's been no one from Adam onward who would have repented and believed apart from God's merciful intervention through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody was ever saved because they logicked it out. No one was ever saved because they sat down and worked out all of the premise. Not that we shouldn't logic it out. The the gospel makes perfect sense, but no one's ever saved for that reason. They're saved because God in his mercy and grace with hardened people has his Holy Spirit penetrate down to the very division of soul and spirit. And he convicts their heart about the truth of that message. That's a witness. Just like when he said on the mountain, or I'm sorry, just like he said at, at the baptism, my beloved son, you know. Uh, the Holy Spirit convicts the world and says, this is my beloved son. Equally strong testimonial from God, the triune God. All will feel that conviction. There is not a person alive who doesn't feel that conviction. But that conviction is not irresistible. Because if it were, there would be no choice involved, would there? If it was not resistible, then as soon as I felt it, there would be ipso facto, this is what happens. You know, I would be deciding for it. No. Everybody ends up feeling the work of the Holy Spirit, convicting and giving them witness, this is the truth. This is my son. But then they have to decide upon that merciful, gracious work of God, apart from which they would never be saved. What will I do with the message? What will I do with this? Remember the, the uh, chief priests? The soldiers go back to them and say, Hey, we had a problem. Angel came. Jesus got resurrected from the dead. You know, pretty straightforward message to them. Uh, what do I do? Well, we'll pay you off. Say somebody overpowered you and stole the body. You know, so, so the, the point being, to know the truth, and the Holy Spirit penetrates it to people's hearts, doesn't foster in them and mandate in them how they respond to it. That's why God holds us accountable for our response to it. What will we do with it? So he says, I've given you three important witnesses 
to the truth of this gospel upon which everything situates, that eternity rests. I've given you the witness of the water where I spoke out of heaven. I gave you the witness of his death, and we could add his resurrection, but we'll focus on the death because it's the blood part, the shedding. So I gave you a witness there. <laughs> I mean, clearly, there was something happened here. The temple veil split. The bloodshed led to that. And he said, and despite whatever thing may be going on in you, you cannot prevent the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because I'll penetrate past every defense you put up, and I will penetrate it to the deepest level of who you are and let you know it's true. So then, where does that lead us? It leads us to this. Are we a person, are we a people, I mean, who have decided on the basis of three witnesses to call him Lord? Or are we a people on the basis of the same three witnesses who call him a liar? And if you think I'm adding severity to it, look what he says. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God's greater. I mean, it's one thing to have three people can attest to something. God's stronger here. He's, he's got more to say and more power behind what he says. He's the expert witness, all right? He's the one who gives us what is unarguable. He says, listen, this is the testimony of men, testimony of God's greater, for this is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, but whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has born about his Son. So, are you a person who calls him Lord, or a person who calls him liar. Every person who has not repented and believed is guilty before God of calling God a liar. Because they stand without excuse. The third person of the Trinity penetrates through everything to the deepest level of their life and lets them know it's true. And so the question is, will the three witnesses be enough for us? You know, uh, will those be enough? What else has God, does God have to do to bring about your repentance and faith? And people will come to me and say, well, I, I can give you some answers to that. I think if God did this miracle, did that miracle, uh, some of these people that are resisting him would turn to him, baloney, baloney. The scripture says just the opposite. Jesus himself said, even if somebody raises something from the dead, you won't believe. <laughs> I mean, it's not more miracles. The miracle of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and the confirmation of the gospel is already the greatest miracle of eternity. And God ensures it penetrates to the heart. What you do with it, you're responsible for before God. And he says, listen, if you reject those testimony." the witness of the water, the blood, the Holy Spirit. You add to the guilt of your life by being guilty of calling God a liar. Same terminology, by the way, in the first chapter when he says, if you won't admit that you're a sinner before me, you're calling God a liar. 
chapter 1, verse 10. It says, you're calling God a liar. And here's the point. The Bible kind of goes out of its way to tell us that calling God a liar is not a good thing. All right? This is not good. Um, in Mark chapter 3, verses 28 to 30, it says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And we're all good examples of that. We won't go and make our list here, but we have a pretty broad list within our body of things that God had to forgive. Isn't that true? Amen. Uh, I mean, he says all sins. In Christ, the wonder of the cross, all sins can be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but guilty of an eternal sin. For they're saying he has an unclean spirit. What was going on? People were saying they were rejecting what the Holy Spirit was convicting their hearts about as Jesus began his ministry. And they were attributing it not to the Holy Spirit's ministry. They were rejecting the essence of it. And so they were guilty of blasphemy of the Spirit. And by the way, that's what blasphemy of the Spirit means. Those of you that, gosh, I wonder what that's all about. It's about rejecting the gospel. Because to reject the gospel is to refuse the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It is to reject what God graciously has done to penetrate through your stupidity and hardness and let you know at the deepest level of your life this is true. And you're saying, it either isn't or I don't care. Either way, you're, not, you're rejecting the fact God's speaking to you. The Holy Spirit is confirming something to you. And you're essentially telling God, I don't believe you're the author of my conviction. Or I'm unwilling to accept that you are. And in stubbornness of heart, that's how I deal with you. Now I'd say that's serious. Lord or liar. Your response to the gospel puts you in one category or the other. Somebody says, well, I never speak disrespectfully about God. Your whole life disrespects him. If you've not repented and believed in the gospel, your whole life disrespects him. You might just as well say he's a liar, he's a liar, he's a liar, he's a liar, because your whole life says that, because you're rejecting the essence of the gospel. I don't care if you're careful with your terminology. You are guilty of calling God a liar. Because you're rejecting the miracle of what he's done inside. I think serious stuff. I don't know about you. I feel uncomfortable about such things. But that's what he's saying here. But notice what else he's saying. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. He said there's three testimonies pointing to the truth of the gospel. And it's time for you to act on that truth. But he says, if you act on it. If you say, okay, he's Lord, <laughs> I accept the convicting work of the Holy Spirit within me, then God says, for you, I've got a fourth testimony. I've got a fourth witness. Only those who have responded into Christ and to the gospel receive this witness. Nobody gets it preliminary to responding to the gospel. The three witnesses are there before you respond to the gospel. What do you do with the gospel? He says, if you respond to the gospel, if you repent and believe, 
I've got a fourth testimony for you. And we have this testimony already talked about in 1 John. What is it? God gives us the testimony in our own heart. The Holy Spirit testifies to our heart that we are now children of God. You see, the witness, the third witness of the Holy Spirit is not to witness to people that they're a child of God, contrary to the world's belief that everybody's a child of God. The Holy Spirit isn't saying that to the world. The Holy Spirit's saying you're a sinner and you need to repent and believe. He's convicting the heart. His message is a message of conviction. But when one responds to the gospel, now the Holy Spirit shifts gears and his message is one of confirmation, not conviction. He confirms at the deepest level of who you are. You're now a child of God. And he enables us, as the scripture puts it in Romans and Galatians, he, he enables us now to respond to God with these words, Abba, Father. My Father. Real Father. I mean, not just some title, but Abba. Abba. People might want to say that, but only the Holy Spirit confirms that. And he says, if you respond to the gospel, I'll do that. I'll give you yet a fourth witness. You, you had enough witness to believe. Now I'm going to give you something else. I'm going to give you this great confirming message from my Holy Spirit within you. I see hope in that. I don't know about you. There's hope in that. And there's no reason ever for the one who has truly repented and believed accepting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, that they should not be able to live in the blessing of confirmation because God is working supernaturally to give it to them. Well, think about these things. Think about these things. We're going to continue on, Lord willing, in our study uh, next time, and we'll start talking about the promise about eternal life. An answered prayer uh, for the believer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being your people through what Christ has done. The opportunities you give us to be in your word and learn from the things that you went out of your way to make available to us. Continue to work in each of our lives, Lord. Drive home in our lives. Are our lives expressing you as Lord? or you as liar. Well, thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.